0: As we go to scripture this morning, uh, there's a few things that we want to think about as we're going to start a series in the book of John. I mentioned this last week, what what we did, I want to look at the calendar and went to where Easter was and we're going to preach the resurrection on Easter morning in April. So we started backing up and we're going to start the series next week in about chapter 11. And as the calendar unfolds, that'll get us pretty close to the resurrection then for Easter Sunday. So this morning, I thought, it's snowing outside. Maybe it'll snow enough that we all get snowed in. You won't care how long I preach, and we're going to do the first 10 chapters. I thought that was funnier than you did. (laughs) Um, What I want to do is just get us ready for when we start in chapter 11, that's the resurrection of Lazarus. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And I kind of want to set the stage so that we're ready for that next week. And it'll flow week week after week. We'll just get to the resurrection then finally on Easter morning. So I want us to think about the book of John. I want us to think about uh, John's purpose in writing it, especially, and just think about some of the background information, some of the themes that are important in the book, and it'll help us just think as we start the book, it'll kind of get us ready for the series. So this morning is a bit of an overview. Stay in the book of John. We're going to be back and forth all over the book. Uh, I've got a couple of other scriptures that we'll put on the screen, but just try to follow along in, in, in the book as we start to go through it. So I want you to think about, as we start thinking about what was John's purpose in writing the book, John wants to convince us of who Jesus is. So if I needed to convince you, if I wanted to convince you that that my name is Aaron Hart, and that my identity truly is Aaron Hart the son of Wayne Hart you know and I could go back to my grandfather and keep going I mean how would I how would I convince you that I am who I am I mean there's probably a couple of stories of I could tell of family history and go give you photographs and mom would say yeah that's really him that kind of thing but at some point maybe I would convince some of you and yet as you start to spread this out let's think I mean besides my mom and my grandma who really cares that I am or am not Aaron Hart let's be honest right Uh, uh, there's a few people here in South Jersey that appreciate that you would like to know that if my name is Aaron Hart you're really here but beyond that at some point it starts to fall apart why well uh, in the big scheme of things in human history I'm not all that significant in human history see John writes to us, to convince us of the identity of someone who is the most important human in all of human history. He, he's the dividing point in all of human history. Uh, he forces a decision in terms of what people believe about his identity. And so whether or not you believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Messiah will be the most important decision you ever make. And John knows that and he's writing to people and he wants to convince them that Jesus really is who he says he is. And so he wants to put together an account or, or, or the story of the gospel, the gospel according to John, and he wants to write about Jesus' life and help them see Jesus really is who he says he is Jesus really is the Messiah and the Christ that we have been waiting for and so John tells us what his purpose is in chapter 20 so if you flip to the end of the book we're gonna come right back to chapter 1 so keep your finger there but go to John chapter 20 and look at verses 30 and 31 this is quite near the end of the book and after the resurrection and John gives us the purpose of the book in John chapter 20 verses 30 and 31 he says this now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name this is John's purpose in writing the book there were many things that Jesus did but he wrote these he, he, he captured these he put this story together so that the people reading would believe that jesus is the christ he's the messiah he's the son of god and that by believing they would have life in his name john knew that if these people believed who jesus was it would change their lives it would give them life and they needed to understand who jesus was now for us for you and i two thousand years removed from the fact we sometimes forget uh, uh we take for granted that jesus is jesus we take for granted that Jesus is truly the Messiah, especially if you've grown up in church, especially if you've grown up hearing these stories, but do what you can to, to go back and put yourselves in the shoes uh, of around the time that Christ was here in the New Testament, especially for the Jews that had grown up, they had grown up learning stories of a Messiah that would come, someone that established the the jews back in all of their glory because right now they're they're living under the rule of the romans and they're waiting for life to be all that was promised for them in the old testament so they were waiting for a messiah they were waiting for someone to do miraculous signs but they certainly did not expect it would look like it did when jesus showed up and so many 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 people did not believe in fact it's so hard for you and I because this is changing even in my lifetime this has changed in the United States in terms of our Western culture but especially when I was growing up Jesus was relatively largely positively thought of even if people weren't willing to submit to his teaching even if people weren't willing to call themselves Christians people by and large thought of Jesus as a good and moral and upstanding person even if they wouldn't submit their lives to him. It's beginning to change that you're going to see Jesus is more and more of a dividing point, that, that what you believe about Christ is going to begin to carry more weight. But in Jesus' day and age, when he wrote, there was no ability to take a middle ground. There was no way to think of him as a good person and yet not be willing to call him the Christ, not be willing to call him the Messiah, not be willing to submit to his teaching. He was a dividing point such that it led to controversy, such controversy that it led to his death. And so John has to explain this. John has to help them see why the Christ and the Messiah that they were waiting for is someone who ended his life, whose life was ended in his own crucifixion. And so John is going to paint the story and he wants people to understand who Jesus is. So as we go through and we jump into chapter 11 where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, I want us to kind of set the stage and think about it so we're ready for that. I want us to think about John's purpose in writing the book and we're going to go go through some of these beginning chapters. The introduction, which Eric just read, we'll, we'll look at a few of the themes in there and hopefully all of this will be preparing us to walk through the book of John together. John was written by uh, one of the disciples. In in John, he's going to call himself the disciple whom Jesus loves. So the son of Zebedee, this John is the author of John. The book is somewhat divided uh, into two books or two collections or two halves. And uh, in in the first part, there's the introduction, which, which you just heard most of it read. There's a few more verses. But following that, up through chapter 12, so the rest of chapter 1 and up to 12 is kind of the book of signs, scholars call it and in the book of signs you see many miracles performed many things there's kind of a common pattern where jesus makes a statement or he performs a miracle and it it forces people into a decision of who he is it creates a misunderstanding it creates a controversy something and it's introducing uh, uh it's showing us who jesus is and all of this is pointing into his identity and then the final sign in the book of signs is the raising of Lazarus from the dead depending on how you count the signs whether you call that the last one or Jesus own resurrection could be the last but when we finish with the story of Lazarus which we're going to start next week and it'll take us a couple weeks to get through that that somewhat brings a close to that first part of the book and then from chapter 13 to chapter 20 is just these final hours, final days of Christ's life, really the final week of Christ's life. Uh, um Excuse me, chapter 13 is just the last 48 hours of Christ's life when we get to that point. And many people call that the book of glory. And you'll see many teaching as Jesus works with his disciples, as he uh, just entrusts with them the teaching before he leaves. And you just see these events leading up to his death. So we're going to take time together as a church to really just focus on that last section of Christ's life. And it will lead us up to... Easter and the resurrection. And one of the things that's unique as you go through the book of John, different than some of the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all very similar. Uh, synoptic Gospels is one way that that's described. There's just so much parallel material, so many things copied over. And John somewhat stands on its own compared to Matthew, Mark, and Luke in a couple of different ways. One, there's, there's a lot of really Uh, What we would think of as significant material that is prominent in the synoptic Gospels that's left out of John. So some of these things would be the narrative parables that are so prominent in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The transfiguration, the institution of the Lord's Supper, uh, any instance of Jesus casting out a demon. There's no mention of Jesus' temptation in John. Uh, and so some of these things we would say, well, these are really significant in the life of Christ. If you wanted to teach people who Jesus was, why did John leave them out? And, and that, that is kind of an interesting question to think about. The second way that John is unique compared to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is how much of the material is unique to John. There's a lot of material in the book that there's no recorded instance of in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So, in fact, the majority of the book would be unique to John. So, the, the miracle we'll spend a couple of minutes in this morning where he turns the water into wine. That's not mentioned in any of the others. The raising of Lazarus from the dead is not mentioned. There's several I am statements, seven times. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Statements like this, and these are not repeated in the others. Many of the private teachings of the disciples and some of the discourses in the temple and in the synagogues, these are unique to John. And John records them. And so we ask ourselves, why? Why, why did John structure the book this way? Why did he choose to include some of these things? and it helps us understand what his purpose was. And, and, and those verses that I read from chapter 20, that, that there were many things that John that Jesus did in the presence of his disciples, but these were written down so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ. That he's the son of god and that by believing you would have life in his name and john's purpose was so uniquely tied to that he was writing to a group of people that would have difficulty accepting that jesus was really christ and and so many of these stories point to that and he's helping them see the true identity of who christ was you have this quote in your bulletin from d.a carson where he says this, So, the plot of John's gospel is very tight, and it is tied finally to the hour, the purpose of God in the crucial redemptive event in all Christian witness, the death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus Christ, and the urgency of true faith in the wake of that event. Nothing will deter John from pressing to that point. Indeed, from pressing men and women to come to terms with that point. John's purpose was very unique and very evangelistic in helping people understand this is who Jesus is, and you must must make a decision about who jesus is and you're going to see that as we go through the book why well if it's true that jesus truly is the most important person in all of human history we've got to come to terms with that fact we must come to grips with the fact that this man has the ability to give life to change all of life and if that's true it will alter the way we live as christians The fact that Jesus is the most important person in all of human history would cause a young couple to take their two children and move to a closed, dangerous country across the world and to literally be willing to give their lives, if necessary, for the spread of the gospel of who this man is. If this story of who Jesus is is true, it has dramatic implications for our lives. And John wants to press people into the truth of who Jesus is. And so in the very beginning, you, you get the idea as you read John, both here and in other places where he writes in Scripture, and he's, he's just a, a, a masterful storyteller. And the way he writes, and there's interconnected themes, and, and you think you're following John, and then there's the, the way he circles back on ideas. He'll plant seeds, and he'll come back around, and pretty soon the story is so interconnected. that you'd, He would be the kind of guy, I think, that would tell a story around a campfire, and you're just enamored by it. You know, for hours you listen, and you finish, and you say, that was the greatest story I've ever heard. And you think you understood it. And for the next several days, you keep thinking back and you begin to see how the plot was connected and you begin to remember phrases he used and you realize that he was telling such a fantastically woven story that it was so complex that the, not only was that the best story you ever heard and not only was he the most masterful storyteller, it was far greater than you realized because of how complex it was. And John, in some ways, is working this way that he's, he's going to begin to tie all these thoughts together and from the very beginning, in this, in this prologue that Eric read. He read to verse 13 and it continues all the way down to verse 18. But you see John begin to plant seeds. He begins to tell you everything that he's going to explain in the next 21 chapters. And there's several themes that come out. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. One of John's points through this, he's trying to help us see the eternal existence of Jesus. And also Jesus' equality with God. He wants us to catch that, that Jesus was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And some of the themes that he's using through this section begin to come up over and over throughout the book. So you're going to see Jesus' equality with the Father come up over and over throughout the book. The themes of light and life and darkness come up over and over throughout the book. And he's planting them right here. When you get to verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. So he's going to begin to introduce us to John the Baptist right here in the prologue. And he's going to take a significant role uh, in some of the beginning stories of The book and at the very beginning John is trying to help us see who Jesus is and the themes that he's going to use so if you look at verse 1 in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God and then you look at verse 14 and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory Glory glorious of the only Son of the Father full of grace and truth John's trying to help us see Jesus Was eternally existent and he was with God and then he came and dwelt with us and we have seen his glory remember he wants people to see that Jesus really is the Christ and the Messiah and if you look at verse 18 John says this in the close of his introduction no one has ever seen God God this eternally existent reality that they all know exists is invisible you cannot see him no one has ever seen God. And then John says, the only God who is at the Father's side, who, who, who is God and at the Father's side? Well, that'd be Jesus. That'd be the Word. He would be the one who was resurrected to be at the Father's side. No one has ever seen God, and the only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. John wants people to see that though you cannot see God, you know who he is and you have seen him through the eternally existent Son who came and dwelt among us. And John needs people to see that. He needs people to see that Jesus really is the Messiah they were waiting for. And he's going to begin to unfold the stories and help them see. And the way he does this then, he begins, and there's some more stories in the introduction. And once you get to chapter 2, he's going to begin explaining some of the signs or events in Jesus' life. Some of the miracles that he does. These are the things that are going to demand a response from people. It's going to spark controversy. And he's helping people see that Jesus really is the Jewish Messiah that they were waiting for. And so in some of these first stories in chapters 2 through 4, you see Jesus and his introduction or or Jesus and his interaction involved in Jewish institutions. So the first one in chapter 2 is Jesus at a wedding party. And weddings would have been very significant in Jewish culture. And you know the story of Jesus turning the water into wine. And so generally at a feast there would have been the wine served and the wedding party was great and they run out of wine. And so the master of ceremonies comes. Uh, uh, Jesus, Jesus' mother realized what's taking place and convinces Jesus to turn the water into wine. And here the wine that is served second is even better. And, and there's this... Uh, realization where people realize his power but it wasn't just his power to turn the water into wine there was something even more significant that was taking place and and so you see this miracle and when you look at verse 11 after the miracle is explained chapter 2 verse 11 this is the first of his signs and John is going to identify several of these and um he wants people to understand not just the power that Jesus had to change the water into wine, but it's pointing to something about his identity, right? It's helping people see who he was and who he is. So this would have sparked some ideas for those who were familiar with the Jewish scriptures. And I want you to see, I've got these verses in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 26. And this is starting in verse 6. Speaking of the messianic kingdom, prophesying of a day... And people would have been familiar with this event. Chapter 25, chapter 25, verse 6. On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have witnessed, we have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord we have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So, who, who is this guy that can take water and turn it into wine? Because we're all waiting for a day. The Jews would have been said, We're waiting for a kingdom where there will be plenty of well aged wine. It will be a feast, and we are waiting for God's abundant provision in that way where death will be wiped away. And here's the guy that shows up, and he can turn water into wine. And, and, and John wants them to see it's a sign. It's a sign. It's pointing. This is an indicator. This is who Jesus is. And so on several of these stories, there's these Jewish institutions, not just the wedding party, but next then is the cleansing of the temple. And Jesus Teaches and helps them see the real purpose. There, you get to chapter three, and there's a rabbi, right? A teacher of the people, Nicodemus, in chapter three. And as as Jesus interacts with him, he's helping he's helping them understand that here, Nicodemus, one of the m- most well, more of the most knowledgeable teachers in all of the Jewish religious system, Jesus had to teach him and help him understand. It wasn't just that the Jews needed a new teacher with new information it was that they needed to be born again they needed a new heart and so then you see john 3:16 perhaps one of the most well-known verses in all of scripture and you see Jesus' interaction with that. And then you have uh, the, the woman at the well of Samaria. And the well would have been very significant in Jewish culture. And you see the way that Jesus interacts with her and points to the true identity of worship, that it wouldn't be tied to a location, but that it would be uh, different than that. And uh, at the end of chapter 4, then you see the healing of the official's sick son. And you see Jesus' power over uh, the sickness. And power over geography that he didn't even have to be physically present but he could heal this man who was sick at at the request and you realize Jesus authority and so you see as John's tying this together here's here's some of the signs of who Jesus is and you begin to see people's response as well you begin to see how people are responding to these truths so to come back to the wedding where he turns the water into wine I read verse 11 the first part this is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him So you begin to see that as Jesus was doing these things, some of them recognized the signs. And some of the people said, yes, this really is who he is. And and, and then after Jesus cleansed the temple, and there was a threat uh, from the religious leaders, and and Jesus makes this bold proclamation that if you destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. And then John inserts verse 22, chapter 2, verse 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that jesus had spoken and john wants people to catch and realize that when you see who jesus is for the christian it strengthens your faith it causes us to believe and, and worship in that way and yet John's also going to help us to see that not everyone responds not everyone responds positively in terms of believing who Jesus is so look at verse 23 of chapter 2 so here's some people that are beginning to believe in Jesus the disciples are beginning to realize and recognize that there's something very important in who Jesus was but what was Jesus response to them in verse 23 now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast many believed in his name when and they saw the signs that he was doing but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man and you begin to realize that there's going to be a group who doesn't respond positively to Jesus in fact when they see these signs Jesus are doing and the signs and the claims that Jesus is making they they're they're going to revolt they're going to cause a riot. They're going to want to seek Jesus' death. And so you begin to see some of this. So not, not only the Jewish institutions in terms of the wedding and the temple and the rabbi and the well and these kinds of things, but then starting in chapter 5, you see some of the Jewish feasts are highlighted. And John begins to write about some of these Jewish feasts, and there would have been a lot of uh, significance in terms of what they pointed to in their meeting. And you look at, um, chapter 5 you see the healing of the man on the Sabbath and so uh, Sabbath, though, though not like a, a feast in the calendar in terms of a yearly calendar. It was a regular weekly remembrance for the people upon which they were supposed to do no work. And here Jesus heals a man who's at the pool. He's been, he's been uh, lame for 38 years and Jesus is able to uh, cause him to take up his bed and walk. And this angers some people that he did this on the Sabbath. And so they come and they confront Jesus. Look at verse 16 of chapter 5. This is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Here Jesus begins to say, The reason I'm allowed to do this is because my father is working on the Sabbath, and so I'm allowed to do this. And Jesus begins to, to show and demonstrate that equality with God. Look at verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And you begin to see the way that the two groups of people wanted to respond to Jesus. When you get to chapter 6, and here you have the Feast of passover and and Jesus feeds the five thousand and, and he then says that he is the bread of life, so not only does he provide the bread for this group that needs to eat, but he makes this dramatic statement that he 's the bread of life, and he helps people see uh, uh, his power and glory in these instances and so he, you really begin to see this start to ramp up in terms of people's response. So in chapter 6, look at verse 35. Chapter 6 in verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Come down to verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So how do people respond to this then? Come over to verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer worked with him, no longer walked with him. And so there were many of people who were interested in who Jesus was for a short time, and they began to see his claims, and and he was truly a dividing point. Some believed and others walked away, and John wanted people to see, look, here's these signs, this is who Jesus is, he's really the Christ. And I want you to believe because by believing you have life in His name. And so He keeps going and you get to chapter 7 and this is the Feast of Booze or the Feast of Tabernacles. There's quite a bit of instances in this, but when you come into chapter 8 verse 12, Jesus says this, and Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. And you see some of the te- themes again tied from that introduction that we read in chapter 1 and Jesus is talking about himself being the light. And in many of these signs, not all, but in many of them there's correlations where... where. Uh, in the miracle that jesus does in providing the bread he then says i am the bread of life in uh, um, speaking of being the living water and these kinds of things uh, is it, you see the way that john has tied all of this together to help us understand who jesus is uh, and then finally in chapter 9 you see jesus again heal a man on the sabbath this time it's a man who's been born blind So in chapter chapter 9, Jesus heals a man who's been born blind. And I want you to kind of see the escalating magnitude a little bit. So I believe it was was back in chapter 4. There was uh, the official's son who was sick, and Jesus healed him. We don't know for sure, but probably only sick for a short time. That's why the official realized he needed to get to Jesus, and this was something urgent. And Jesus shows his power to heal a man who's been sick for a short time. And then there's a man who's been lame for 38 years. I, I mean, that's more significant than somebody who suddenly got sick and then there's somebody who's been born blind so for his entire life he's been without sight this is even more significant and you see Jesus power increasing all the way until next week we look at Lazarus and you'll see even his power over death and you see Jesus healed this man who was born blind and give him sight and this creates a great controversy because he did it on the sabbath and so the 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 religious officials then come and they question the man who did this and he says i i don't know and so then they go and they question the man's parents and they don't really want to get involved in the middle of the controversy he is of age go go and ask him so the religious officials get the man who is born blind back and look at verse 24 in chapter 9 I want to spend a little bit more time than the remainder of the time that we have in chapter 9 and 10 and kinda finish this section out because it all sets the stage then for next week in the raising of Lazarus so here they called for the second time so verse 24 of chapter 9 so for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him give glory to God we know that this man speaking of Jesus is a sinner And he answered, the man who was born blind answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? No, they didn't. Verse 28, and they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. you were born in utter sin and would you teach us and you see the religious leaders and their anger and the way they turn on this man and it says that they cast him out and then in the next verse jesus hears that they cast him out and so he goes to him and he says do you believe in the son of man and he answered him and who is he sir that i may believe in him and jesus said to him you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you Verse 38, and he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him, and Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. You know what Jesus is saying? He came in this world to open the eyes of the blind so that they would be able to see, and the ones who think they already see, these religious leaders, well, they would be blind. And Jesus came and all the signs point to him and many people believed and yet it hardened the hearts of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and these religious leaders and they became angered at who Jesus was and they they begin plotting to kill him and they were seeking to do away with him and so you get to chapter 10 And I don't know if your Bible has a heading. My Bible has the heading, I am the good shepherd. And there's this well-known story here in chapter 10 where Jesus speaks and teaches on what it means that he is the good shepherd. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Now it says then that people didn't understand what he was talking about. And so he goes on to explain it further. And it's not that he's explaining just what he said, but he brought up several themes in those first five verses. He brought up the theme of sheep, of shepherd, of a gate, and then he's going to go and he's going to explain them further. He, he, he's going to add on teaching and give a better explanation of some of those themes then. And, and this, I, I brought attention to the heading of the Good Shepherd because often my mind has thought of this passage of these kind of warm pastoral tones that Jesus, he's the Good Shepherd, almost like Psalm 23. He makes me lie down in green pastures. And why all of that is true, that is not Jesus' intent. Here to warm people 's hearts and to quiet their emotions and to make them just flock to him as the good shepherd, this would have angered and reviled here the escalation just keeps mounting it 's increasing in hostility to the to the fierce uh, to the um, Scribe, uh, excuse me, to the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And Jesus is going to point out, I'm the good shepherd. You're a bunch of false thieves. You're false shepherds. You're hirelings. You're stealing away the sheep. You're not caring for them as you should. So with that in mind, listen to what Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, which is exactly what Jesus would do. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, he who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves and sh- and the sheep flee and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He goes on. At some point you need to finish reading this tonight, but for sake of time I'm going to stop there. And he's helping people to see, look, I'm the good shepherd. All of these signs are pointing to me. Jesus is saying that he's... He's the Messiah. He's the one who has come to care for the sheep. And all of these scribes and Pharisees who are revolting against Jesus, they're the false shepherds. And it would have brought to mind passages of scripture in Ezekiel. I'm not going to go there for sake of time. But in Ezekiel 34, you'll see uh, where the prophet just condemns Israel's leaders for being false shepherds and for not caring for the people. And God finally says that one day he himself will come and gather his sheep and he will be be their shepherd and Jesus came uh, in a step of fulfillment to that Jesus comes to be the good shepherd and to point out the error of the Jews religious leaders and so all of the stage is set now for this controversy now where Christ then is going to perform to this point his greatest miracle the raising of Lazarus from the dead and it is gonna again increase his popularity that some will believe and it's going to solidify the opposition against him, that they will plot to kill him. And so the stage is set. John has been working to show us the signs that this is who Jesus is. Why? Why was John working so hard to explain these things in this way? Remember, for you and I, it's easy to forget that Jesus really, it's easy to forget how hard it would be to believe that Jesus was the Messiah if you were a New Testament era person. Paul said it in Corinthians that the cross, the message of the cross is folly, right? To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. Cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. There's no way Jesus could be the Messiah, the Jews would think. I mean, the Messiah was supposed to come and overthrow the Romans. And this man, we know how his life ended. He hung on the cross. He can't be the Messiah. And John's pointing all of it out. He's writing it. He's saying the signs are all there. They're there in the Old Testament. This is who Jesus is. And he wants them to place their faith and trust in Christ. Corinthians says that that the cross is foolishness to the Gentiles. Uh, I mean, to a a conquering, powerful people, what kind of king ends his life in crucifixion? And John wants to lay it all out, that that this was all part of God's plan. We're going to keep marching story after story, discourse after discourse, passage after passage, and it's going to culminate in Jesus' death and resurrection. And that was all part of God's plan. These are the signs that all of this was pointing towards. And John doesn't want people to miss that because some have, for the wrong reasons, discarded Jesus. And for you and I, we as people, we need to seriously think about who Jesus is and what he demands and expects of our life. We want to believe that somehow we're okay. We don't need a Messiah. That we can, in our own righteousness, work our way to God. But it's simply not true. And a close examination of Jesus' life will show that to us. We want to believe that that we can just add Jesus to our life, that we can live our lives the way we want, show up to church occasionally. Maybe we've got some prayer that we said in our younger days that we hope that will get us into heaven, and it's just not true. If Jesus really is who he says he is, If he really is the most important person in all of human history and the dividing point of all of human history, he's the dividing point for all of our lives and it will demand expectations on our lives such that we would live all of our lives to the glory of God. And I want us to march through this in the weeks ahead and, and to prepare our hearts for Easter. And I hope that it's an encouragement to you. We just got done celebrating Jesus coming. right? his arrival to this world as a baby. And we remember that the reason he came was to die on that cross. And let us be thinking about that in the coming weeks, learning about it, applying it to our lives, and realizing the claim and the hold that Jesus has on our lives. And if you're here and you don't know Christ, I would plead with you to, to keep coming back and learning about Jesus as we go through the book of John. Read the book of John on your own, a chapter a day. Speak with one of us. We would love to share more and uh, be able to, to explain who Jesus is so that you can have this hope and assurance of eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we're grateful that you uh, came to this world and dwelt among us in the person of your son, Jesus Christ. We're grateful that you wanted to make yourself known to us. We're grateful that you told us about all of this and recorded it in Scripture so that, so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Father, we, we want to be people who believe. And I, I pray that if there's some here this morning who don't believe, that you would show them that they need to turn from their sin and trust in Christ, that they would seriously examine who Jesus is and the claims that he made and what that means for their life. Encourage us as a church as we spend these coming months studying the life of Christ from the book of John and what it means for our lives. Help us to change accordingly. We ask and pray in Christ's name, amen.